Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all the content we put out into the universe. Um, in this episode, we are going to be continuing our Q&A, and we source all these questions from Twitter. So if you're not following me on Twitter, Follow me on Twitter, and the handle is at Focus Compound, as you can see right now if you're watching the screen. Um, it's the best place to connect with individuals. It's the best place to get everything that we put out um, into uh, the investing world. Um, that's where we distribute everything. So follow me on Twitter, at, at Focus Compound. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, reach out to me, Andrew, at FocusedCompounding.com. So let's continue on with our questions. Yeah. Okay. So somebody asked, with your focus on smaller, more illiquid stocks, how do you manage the risk of not being able to scale out of a position if your investment thesis is wrong or if a much better opportunity develops? That's a great question. We basically have to buy as if we're going to stay in the stock and not be able to reallocate that money. Um, there are investments that we have where it would be um, that's not the case where we probably know that we could sell out and stuff because it's just uh, large compared to the position that we ended up taking. But yeah, generally, that's what it means. You know, Buffett said, don't buy a, don't own a stock for what, 10 minutes that you're not want to own for 10 years or whatever. Mm. We have to think that way when we do it. Um, so that does, you know, mean you can't benefit as much from volatility and things that if a stock we own goes up uh, 100% and something that we liked less but liked goes down 50 percent at the same time and sometimes that can happen you know if they're in totally different industries and things then we can't take advantage of that you know i talked to a lot of people who do the value trading thing more okay this one i bought a p of 12 it goes up to 20 something i sell it i buy another one that has low pe you know that i like them and i have a watch list of them we can't do as much of that is there a place for quality metrics in a deep value approach so if it's deep value maybe it's not a high quality company is it more of like a cyclical well, thing? So it could be maybe different measures of quality. Quality is this really tricky thing. A lot of people talk about like um, quality meaning high profitability and a good business model that way and stuff. But see, quality, see, deep value, it's more important that it survives and that it will last forever. If it has durability and it has low credit risk, then something that's very cheap is very attractive. So I talked about that with like car dealers and things like that. You know, we, we bought them at a price tangible book, less than one, uh, quite a bit less than one, low EV to EBITDA. There are lots of other, so people would say deep value. When you're trade, you know, if you're a two thirds of tangible book and you're at less than four times EV to EBITDA or something at some of these got to um, and stayed at for a while, um, then it, that's kind of deep value for today's market. Um, but it's issues of like how safe are they from a credit perspective? Do they make money every single year? Do they generally generate cash flow from operations? When I did looking at net nets for like a, a newsletter thing that uh, for people, um, um, I was concerned always that they would buy net nets uh, without considering the long term past of the company. So we mentioned like Friedman Industries, which had a long period of paying a dividend, not always a very high dividend compared to the stock, but many years in which it made some profit, long existence as a public company. That's, you know, more desirable. So like if a, the difference between a net net that's lost money in many recent years and one that's made money for 10 straight years, um, but not much money. Uh, can it hurt your approach, though, like reduce your returns and would quants not like it? I think yes, uh, 
Um, for instance, a really tricky one is I would say don't buy a retail net net. I would say retailers are net nets. You don't buy them. Um, Why is that? Well, so it's not just that you don't like, like retail is tricky to invest in and you want to know if things are going bad and whatever. It's literally the credit risk. So what happens is why something like uh, Toys R Us or um, different like sporting goods stores or something fail really quickly. Like you just hear about, oh, things aren't going so well. There's some talk about maybe we need to restructure things. And then in a matter of weeks, it's they're in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Everyone tries to get in front of it once they're afraid that any of the suppliers could um, be expecting payment faster and all that. And so trade credit is so important in retail. So relying less on trade credit, having access to capital in different ways and stuff could be a major factor. I would say lower credit risk on net nets is really important. Now you have the Z score and things like that, but companies that just have a better ability to uh, not face credit risk. That's the thing I don't like about price to book as a general thing across the stock market. Price to book is fine with specific assets you understand and you understand the credit situation. I think mostly when when people just buy price to book as value investors, they're taking a huge amount of credit risk for no real need to do it. You could t- use other metrics. There's nothing wrong with valuing it off of assets and stuff. I just think that the leverage and those things that we're seeing in it and the way it works is that price to book being cheap often involves a highly leveraged situation, whether it's leveraged in certain terms of trade credit stuff or leverage in terms of financial debt, leverage in terms of leases, all of that. So, you know, um, so quality in the sense of like trying to figure out other um, measures, some measures of credit quality, things like that, that you could get at would be helpful. You know, if you had movie theaters and you were saying, okay, I need a deep value approach to movie theater things. Well, Marcus owned a lot of hotels, owned a lot of movie theaters themselves and everything, had better credit situation during coronavirus. Is Are there some metrics I can get at that? So having low debt to equity, having large um, accumulated appreciation, large PP and E versus total things like that, especially large land versus total balance sheet. Um, you know, not relying a lot on the um, working liabilities that you have in your business and things like that to finance yourself. So being able to survive a decline in sales. So there's probably some ways to figure out those metrics. But high profitability and stuff, I'd say no. I think a good net net, a good cheap bank, a lot of things like that often shows poor returns on assets right now, but they have an asset that could earn more in a different market environment, right? Freeman Industries, in a terrible market for steel and whatever won't earn anything, but in a big successful, um, uh, I mean, they'd be very successful in just a quarter or two in uh, a market that was shooting up. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you saw, so right? So it's more like having a ton of assets, not having a lot of debt, being in a position where you can benefit from, like Buffett says, there's like some hiccup or something in the business, that's how you get your cigar puff. So being able to last forever and, um, you know, so credit safety stuff and things like that and having a lot of, of durable assets and things, like the durability in that aspect of it, survival, the ability to like be very... Um, yeah, not a fad and not exposed to credit risk and stuff is really what you need. Got it. Next question. Who are some of the most underrated industries to invest in? What are some of the most underrated industries to invest in? Um, hmm. What industries would you say are underrated? I'm a steel trays answer. Okay. Thanks. Post-financial crisis. That's one that a lot of people stay away from. I think because... If a bank ever runs into capital or if a bank ever runs into issues, they need to raise capital. 
right? And because of the fact that it's a black box, I think people stay away from banks. Yeah, I think that's potentially true. Um, I think... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure all the reasons why people avoid banks. I mean, what's hard about a lot of these also, banks have very big companies in them and they're very small ones. And so the... Uh, the, the indexes um and so picking out very small ones that you like might you might be able to do okay and everything but you have this overall the headlines and stuff are all about these biggest ones so it's a little different than some other industries that way i guess do you think you're betting more on the jockey when you're investing in bank stocks the mm-hmm. jockey and yeah, the culture sure we we've said like in terms of a jockey bet i think i would only do that the, the thing where i think it's most important is banking insurance mm-hmm. you know um there are some other things where it's important but you know that that's some of the most important. So yeah, I think bank things might be one of them. Um, but I, you know, I th- you can look at long term returns in different industries and stuff by trying to find like presentations on this and all of that. A lot of very boring industries that aren't cyclical, I think, are underrated. To be honest, so slower growing, not cyclical, but having decent profitability over time. So that could be banks but it could be food um things uh it can be yeah it depends there's all sorts of stuff that gets grouped together in those though but you can find them entertainment hospitality consumer uh goods and things like that you know if you're just putting in code though it's very confusing because there's there's lots of things in like that group that i would consider totally different Right. But the more predictable ones, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think predictability of like the smaller, more predictable companies are more overlooked. So industries where there's not really big players, where there's big predictable players in an industry, I think it tends not to be overlooked. Right. So if the best one in the industry is Facebook and Facebook is giant, then that industry is not overlooked. Uh-huh. But, you know, if there's great examples of small ones and the bigger ones aren't necessarily doing as amazingly in terms of profitability, I think that's interesting. We've talked about, you know, um, what ones have we talked about that are unusual examples? Uh, I think I said that I thought Lime was a better industry than some people thought along. Um, I, I thought car dealers were a better industry. Buffett thought that, obviously. You know, um, airlines before the pandemic and stuff definitely got to be a better industry that's underrated. There's a trial or there's a there's stuff going on in a um, case that has to do with another industry that's underrated <laughs> but could have some bid rating issues and stuff like that uh, not bid rating but uh information sharing and, and different um um what would you call it um uh, uh, cartel type activities and it's um uh, uh chicken processing so the companies that make chicken um I, I, that is similar to airlines to me great underlying economics terrible situation for competition if there's too much competition and it can happen really fast in airlines or uh, as um, uh, as uh, processing chicken, then they're really bad businesses. But in theory, if you could eliminate competition, if you could cooperate in some way, the economics would be really good. Hmm. So those kinds of industries are weird because they have terrible results when there's excess competition. They're very short cycle, cyclical kinds of things. And then if there's some way to reform it over time, then you can get better results. So that's always one that's tempting to people. Um, so, you know, you can follow things like that. You know, Lime wasn't, I didn't think Lime was as good in industry 50 years ago or something, but if you watch the process over the last 50 years, I think it's gotten better. Airlines are way better now than they were before. That's why Buffett was in them. And better because of consolidation. 
Correct. Yeah. Consolidation and, and some things that have to do with that, you know, domestically, I'd say um, in different ways, not just how they consolidate it. When people say consolidation, yes, a lot of times I think of acquisitions so like that, some acquired, but just things like how big Southwest got over time and stuff like that. Um, and how slow, it, slowing down of growth um, also can help that you had too much growth before. I mean, fast asset growth is usually bad. So most industries where you see fast as asset growth, I'd say mostly underrated industries are probably industries that have slower asset growth than people like, because people are usually attracted to the industries that are putting in a lot of new investment and, and growing and stuff. Whereas usually it's after that phase is slowed down where there's not as much investment, they're starting to generate the ability to have buybacks or dividends, but maybe they're not doing them yet. You know, kind of like Apple, right? When Buffett was interested in buying back and stuff, you can see now it looks like a totally different company than before. But when it was that transition from very growth oriented phase, maybe that got more attractive. Because um, the smartphone industry obviously slowed down by a huge amount during that period. I mean, it was a huge growth one. And then now, um, you know, everyone has smartphones, so there's not much more that you can mm -hmm. grow. Next question Is a company like Lemonade actually disrupting insurance? I don't want to come on Lemonade. I've looked at the company. I, someone, a blog that I read, wrote it up. Some people were interested in it and talked to me about it. Um, you know, they talk about what their loss ratios, what their customer acquisition costs are. Uh, what I would say is in a lot of these, anyone can, they, they talk a lot about the growth rate. Like one, I was reading something that someone wrote up and they said, well, this one's more attractive because the growth rate is higher than this one. <laughs> um, they both had their loss ratios for both of them were too high. So um, that's the reverse is true. That's not good um, in, until you get, I mean, they may be able to figure out both things at the same time and everything. But, uh, you know, Buffett's talked about this. If you can grow a bank or an insurance company, especially an insurance company, very, very quickly if you're willing to uh, make certain assumptions and then you'll have losses in your future. Um, like coming down on your risk parameters, mm -hmm. taking on like loosening your risk controls. Right. Or there may have in this case for some of these kinds of companies, and I don't want to single this one out, but just a lot of them. Um, I don't, with all these, I don't know how much they sell themselves to investors a certain way or how much they believe it themselves. And if they believe it themselves, it's, it is more, worrying than if they're selling themselves to investors but don't believe what they're saying. Well, what I mean is how they're presenting themselves. Not that there's anything wrong with the facts and stuff, but saying that we're a different kind of company. And if you just look at what customer acquisition stuff is in insurance, the lifetime value of the customer, how much you would lose, all of that. Um, if this was really true, why don't Geico and Progressive grow faster than they do? Um, why does progressive progressives had years where they could grow a lot faster than they did. And they've sometimes said, look, we made a mistake. We were, we were too conservative this way. They target a certain the progressives history is that they target a certain combined ratio. I mean, they, what they target is the fastest growth possible with a certain combined ratio. Well, so if you start making estimates longer term about what that is and everything um, you can, you can fool yourself. Um, but I mean, it could be right, but it's like when we talk about the Fed, here's what inflation is. Here's what people think it's going to go to over time, whether we do something or not. Mm -hmm. um, you'd have to be raising rates more and faster and ending up at a higher rate if it wasn't going to come down at all. You'd have to be doing a lot less if it's going to come down. But the probability is not 100% that you're right about this or that. Um, so they have... I, 
you know, a bunch of these, in, what do they call them? InsureTech? Yeah. Um, have very high loss ratios and also do not have low combined ratios. Um, a company that has a historically had a more realistic approach to it, although presents itself a certain way, is Trupanion. Trupanion does present itself a certain way and does somewhat, dis- they use different metrics and things in how they present themselves, but you can understand what they're saying in terms of an insurance company. And it's not a crazy idea that Trupanion's had over time. I d- I'm not sure I I think that some of the new companies in that in terms of newly public companies have actually been as um, clear over time as Trupanion. But I think Trupanion also has a difference in terms of customer acquisition things over time in terms of what they can accomplish and what's realistic in other insurance products. Um, Retaining the customer and having a long life of the customer stuff is very important. You can pay a very high rate as long as you're right about the lifetime value of the customer and all that. But if if not, then you have a really big problem because the loss ratios are high. So you can have high loss ratios in something if someone's going to sign up with you and stay forever. Um, and some of these products are not that. Some might be, but some are definitely not. Do you have any thoughts on buy now, pay later? you financing a Domino's pizza? So some of the buy now, pay later things, obviously uh, the issue that they have is that they're not priced. Uh, they're, not, they're not, they would lose money quickly um, given the spreads that we're talking about. So it's not even an issue of customer acquisition stuff. It's just an issue of um, that this doesn't work in terms of what you get your money at and what you um, lend it out at. So that's the issue that I see there. And um, they would be... Well, they would be... We talk about what financial things could be affected a lot and stuff. I think buy now, pay pay later could be very affected by um, interest rate change stuff being very important. Yeah. They they generally don't have access to low cost money, and they don't price sufficiently. It, when I say price, you know, they say it doesn't cost you anything, but then it could cost you something, and so I'm factoring that in what that average is out to. Um, yeah, I mean it's fascinating. This is kind of like I don't know if it's the last stage of a bull market or whatever, but we're now at the point where we're rewarding financial companies that grow very quickly with financial models that grow very quickly. When obviously anyone could have done this, I mean, if you want companies to buy you know buy now pay later i mean you can have a technology thing that does this and stuff but you go out on the street and say this and you would have been able to grow your your loan book um you know same thing with the insurance things i mean i we know what their loss ratios are i know what the very best insurance companies are in terms of how low their um, expense ratios are if we put the two together and get to a combined ratio thing um the biggest insurers in things like car insurance and stuff could have grown faster if they were willing to do what these companies are doing. And the same thing with, you know, buy now, pay later. I mean, yeah, you're not financing a boat or a house or something that has collateral value. When you use car that they could repo. I mean, this is like pizzas and furniture and stuff like that. When you sell consumer products, um, when you sell a slow cooker, your Hamilton beach brands and you sell a slow cooker, that growth is very different. You accomplish something. You gave someone a slow cooker. 
they gave you even more cash than it cost you to make the slow cooker. And now your relationship is over, right? You have like a one year, you know, get in, if we did something terrible as a manufacturer. Let's then. say if it's Hamilton, it'll probably <laughs> like, to, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, otherwise, you know, it's over. We got more cash than we gave you. Relationship's over. That's it. Financial service stuff that we're talking about here is completely the opposite. Um, so obviously, if you're not, I mean, the thing that's a little worrying about this stuff, I guess, this is like progressed in different stages in terms of the speculative nature of it, right? So the first phase of this is a little worrying as a speculation is a perfectly sound company that's not speculative at all. The management is clear-eyed and everything about it and for the long term. But for some reason, people push up the stock price a lot. So there's too much speculation in the future of the company. Then you have like phase two of that, which is now the companies are too speculative in terms of what they're thinking they can accomplish. And you're too speculative on the stock, right? Peloton or whatever, or we were talking about Boston beer. So you're pushing up the stock to an unrealistic value. And they are thinking unrealistic about what inventory level should be in the future and all that. Okay, so we've got those two things. Now we've moved into another one where it doesn't even require that we make the bikes and that we make the spiked seltzer and stuff. That's not even a constraint on us. We're now completely unconstrained because it's as fast as we can make promises. So... It's very, you, things can go bad very quickly in financial stuff because all you have to do is make the promise, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. You're not constrained by we have to build this product and it, the relationship is not over at the time at which you do that. So if you think growth is desirable in a financial company, that's where it gets a little worrying. If you value it based on sales, sales growth, when people say this company is growing faster than this other one, so that's more desirable, it depends as long as there's no deterioration in the quality of what they're doing. And there's always deterioration, even in the best companies. If you're taking market share, then you're getting more and more marginal business over time, which means that there is deterioration. The, the other things equal the loans that you're making and the business that you're writing can't be as good as before because why didn't someone else write it now? You know, why can you take this business from someone last who, you know, why is that possible? With Progressive, for instance, they can sometimes have lower expense things for some. And Progressive is also able in, for some, and each insurer has some ability this way, to better price certain risks. Um, to know that that they're making the right decision with this person who looks like they're in a very risky category. And they are somewhat riskier, but they are not in the worst part of that category. And over time, this is someone that, that they can take the risk on. Um, you know, and there are others that are doing that. I think we mentioned one before that that's based basically, I, I think we mentioned, but I don't know. That's based on doing loans that are more on your educational background rather than your um, credit score and things like that. That's a strategy that's possible, you know. Um, uh, it, but what it means is that you're you're irresponsible with credit. And you, you have a high risk taking as an individual, but the the strategy, they don't say it this way, but the strategy is because you're well educated and you got an education, you did great in that. And, and this education has a lot of value over time and we can follow that over your lifetime. Your um, income will rise to exceed your expenses, even though you're taking more risk than other people who are in your same situation. So you're a well-educated, but high um, uh, risk taking person. And historically, with the way financial um, companies looked at that for consumers and stuff like that, uh, with um, FICO and all that, they weighed the fact of your risk taking, in a sense, your behavior, more so than like um, your earning potential. And so there was not an attitude of, well, they'll outgrow their 
their um, any problems that they have. So that shifts things into now it's more okay to base it on people's educational background that it'll work out. And each of these have biases in them, you know? So some of the things are disrupting stuff that way, sure, in terms of how they're doing it. Um, and then he asks, what's the best environment for bonds? For bonds? Well, the best environment... Declining interest rates. The best environment for bonds is deflation. Yeah. So, you know, deflation is that. Well, because you're being guaranteed to be paid back in dollars mm -hmm. and those dollars become more valuable over mm -hmm. time. So that's something like you've seen in Japan. So if you have a huge... So, you know... Um, I don't know what the future will be and I don't know what, how countries will react to things and stuff. But like, if you were thinking now, I guess people would think, oh, should I buy bonds in China rather than the US? Maybe more likely China built a lot of, of um, uh, stuff, a lot of productive capacity. And if there's not a lot of demand for that over time, because China's population, you know, is uh, not growing a lot and all those sorts of things, uh, it's not going to grow at all in the, in the future, really, um, then that could be that kind of situation. So, you know, like uh, depression, things like that with bonds, you know. Historically, right, the thing was uh, peacetime. The, at the end of a war and the beginning of peace was the best time for bonds because you'd have inflation during wartime and then uh, peace would cause deflation um, as you move back from overheating your economy with trying to have a big government push to do stuff at the same time that you had normal business activity to saying, okay, we don't need any of that government stuff anymore. Let's pay down the debt and let's, you know, so deflation. Next question. If Jeff had to pick one industry to invest all his personal capital, what would it be? Would he choose the industry where he has the most edge or the industry with the best economics? It'd have to be something wide um, in terms of what potential things you could do. So a lot of different things in different countries. It would have to be not very cyclical. You wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to do something like financial or commodity and those things. Probably, probably entertainment things probably. Yeah, but it'd have to be very broadly defined that way. But I would say probably entertainment, yeah. Mm -hmm. What about cigarettes or alcohol? Um, I guess this doesn't say like pick one and hold it forever. No, but something that you just, that's all that you invested in. Yeah. Probably if I could only invest in one thing all the time, it'd be entertainment. There's enough variety in things. It's an insulated enough from like being, it just doesn't move much better on macro things. And, and there's examples of it of all different sizes around the world. So yeah, probably that. Next question. Why does Jeff like Netflix over Google? Uh, I think <laughs> that, you know, this was a, I maybe misspoke or I thought I was answering a different question than I did in a previous podcast. I thought uh, what I was answering is which company, what fang stock do I think is the most durable? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Netflix. No, that that is what you said. Netflix, I think, is the most durable. Yeah. Why do you think that? Well, it doesn't depend on technology at all. I mean, it has technology, it uses technology, but it doesn't need it. Um I don't think there'll be as much disruption of things in terms of uh, how entertainment works and what people want. It's long form entertainment, which is less less likely to be disrupted and stuff that way too. Um, then when we're talking about short form stuff, which is much riskier that way, it's higher quality entertainment um, as opposed to things that are user generated and stuff like that, which is much 
uh, trickier. There's more barriers. It's just more barriers. There's like chicken and egg problems. How do you sign up all of the subscribers that you need? You need a large subscriber base to be able to sign up all the rights that you need or to have a big budget to be able to pr- make all this content yourself, which in Netflix's case, I think is what they'll have to do because they've been blocked out of a lot of major studio production now because they each have their streamers. So, you know, they're not going to get the content from them. So, yeah, I just think that's why. I could see more things changing with Google and how we access things and stuff like that than with Netflix. Don't know that it will happen with Google, but it could. Google, you know, had some pretty big risks. I mean, maybe they would have developed things on their own if they never bought something with Android and done all that and whatever. But, you know, things have changed a bit. The way that search has done has changed a bit. The YouTube thing is really big for Google in terms of what the future will be. But, um, yeah. I wouldn't say things have changed less than I would have expected with Google. If anything, I don't think that their like their moat and whatever has turned out to be as big as I would have anticipated. Just because there has been maybe more change in that. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, Apple depends a lot on this device thing. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if a particular device is how people are going to do things. Are they going to you know touch the side of their head? And well, Mark Zuckerberg whatever. says no that they aren't going to use that device i listened to a podcast he did with lex friedman mm-hmm. it was a great podcast actually proved that mark zuckerberg is not a robot mm-hmm. he opened up the podcast you would like lex friedman um but he opened up the podcast basically making him circle like i am not a robot you know when okay. you go to log in but that was kind of a funny joke but i think mark's future or that he's predicting or trying to create himself there is not a device either it's through glasses form and there's some sort of version of like augmented reality in uh you know mixed with the the physical world where you could do calls surf the web do all that sort of thing um Mm -hmm. i don't think he thinks you're gonna have a you know three by six inch device in your pocket to basically run your daily life and that makes perfect sense so we're going back to the the gan way of living life uh that makes perfect sense and you could certainly do that i mean i don't think that technologically that's some impossible thing it's kind of an accident that it's a phone that you use um but I also would say the issue with all these is how entrenched it becomes as a behavior and then whether it really matters. A lot of times people say, oh, well, we don't have to do it that way. We can do it this way. Okay. How difficult is it having a phone, charging it, bringing it around with you that you're used to? Is it some big difficulty in your life? No. You know? And um, yeah, so you just have to like, why would you eliminate that behavior? Is this a big point for people that this is something that they want to get rid of there's lots of things where we can invent something better um and would have made sense in the first place not to do this other in between step but that doesn't mean we're not going to switch it so why did you eliminate it from your life oh well but i would eliminate what uh, mark zuckerberg has planned yeah yeah no i just don't i don't want to be in, in constant contact with other people and with um headlines and with any of those things i don't want um I want to actively use whatever information and stuff that I have. I don't want to passively receive that. And so I'm not someone who likes to turn on a TV and see a scrolling thing on the bottom of all the prices, all the news, whatever. I don't like to uh, do any of that stuff. Um, I like to actively read the things and mark them up and whatever. I like to pick out what things I'm going to do and what, you know, that way. And uh, Not a multitasker. No, not a multitasker. Um, So... That's why I avoid all those sorts of things. But I think that's, to me, more than anything, that's been like when you're talking about the, well, um, yeah. I think the biggest thing has been, 
Well, I'd say the lowering of friction in general is what people have really been interested in uh, with technology. Sure. So the ability to, um, so like for instance, let's let's even take things like it, things Listen have de- developed, but things have developed in different ways than I think people might have anticipated. So Facebook is not really a place for communications because it turns out most people don't actually want to say stuff; they just want to hear stuff. You know, it's a good point. And yeah, sure. Yeah, and this is true for a lot of things. And early things with the internet had a lot more interaction by people in them and and all that. So I think that's there's more. Uh, there's been more of a trend to the frictionless thing and how attractive that is to people of things automatically happening for them. I don't want to have to pick out what I want to want next. next. I want you just to start playing it. And, and how important it is buy with one click to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, right. Uh, Domino starts ordering pizza for you, whether you want it or not, if you open their app. Or yeah. Something. They have it right there. <laughs> um, yeah. So on the other hand, lots of things, you know, d- don't seem to work out. Um, Amazon d- tried that Go thing and that that didn't work. The, you walk through it and you don't have to pay and stuff. And it turned out people were like okay with paying probably. Mm-hmm. That's one, you know, but it speeds things up and maybe people like it better. Uh, I don't know. You know, th- there's all these different ones where I think about, well, do people really care about that? Is this an inconvenience for them? You know, I was saying I was reading the BlackBerry thing. And one of the points about the BlackBerry thing was... Um, you'll have to recharge the phone all the time. It'll have a really short battery life, the iPhone and others competing with them. And uh, net, and traffic on your network will be really slow if you do this, so we can't do it that way. Uh, and both those things don't to be true. Mm-hmm. People just had to learn to charge your battery all the time versus having something that they never had to, that based on their use, like when BlackBerry was just a thing for email, they didn't have to worry about charging that thing for a long time. And um, and people, you know, and people with AT&T doing that as a special thing with iPhone and stuff did cause a lot of problems for the network. I remember that from the very early days of broadband, um, just in internet, in homes, when they, with cable stuff. Mm-hmm. If you were in an area where everyone signed up for the service, you know, 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., the internet stopped moving. Slow, yeah. Yeah. It worked at other times of the day and stuff, but it stopped at those times, and it was no advantage over like dial-up and stuff for a little while. And they fixed those problems, but they signed up everyone at once. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, the, that's the the big trend that I see in everything that I've that looking at tech things and trying to understand it that we've took consumer tech things that we talked about, um, and is is the ease with which you could underrate. Uh, this idea of taking away all of the the friction, and so things that don't have any need for you to do anything, um, and then it, you know, um, whether that's even just paying a little bit for something, or whether that's or whatever, any of the thinking required by that to make it more automatic for the person. So to um, you know, automatic habitual type behavior by the person um, is the big thing that I've noticed, and that's been most effective, and I think it's had a big part and building some of the habits that we're seeing here but some of them developed in different ways than i would have expected and i don't you know i i think the moat for some the the moat is not as strong as i would have thought for some big tech companies okay like what i think that as the internet developed in each stage uh particularly from iphone on really is what i mean um although it's true earlier than that, but let's go with that. Um, it, so what you want it, normally with a moat 
is that as your company progresses, it becomes more and more difficult for someone else to catch up to you and to replicate what you did. I think it's become easier to replicate what others have done. You've basically built a system on which they can use your service in many cases to spread the word about their service, to grow virally in the same way, and to build something else along with it. And a lot of stuff is piggybacked on that. And so that is a concern um, that I don't think the barriers to entry are higher. I think sometimes they're lower. I think they're huge economies of scale. But using those economies of scale to prevent com competition is more what it's about. It, there are industries in which you can be 100 times someone else's size and the other one can hurt you. And there are industries where you can be twice someone's size and they can't hurt you because of how those barriers to entry work. It's when we talk about a cement plant or something. You will not build a cement plant next to if you're going to be – there's already one there. Even if you were the same size, you're not going to build right next to them and bring down both your returns on capital to nothing. So they're insulated from that to a certain point where they can earn decent returns on capital. Mm -hmm. um, if there's already a bus route somewhere, you're not going to compete with them. The only way you can compete with them is basically giving away nearly free bus routes, running buses right in front of and right behind them and everything, and having a war there where you both lose a lot of money, and then only I can outlast you is the only way that you can do that. With a lot of these other things, I don't think some of these later apps and things I think grew out of the earlier ones, and it would have been very hard for them to ever have the success they did without things which they eventually became major competitors to. And actually, they're the ones who supported their growth in the beginning. So, yeah, that's what I took away from, you know, I read a bunch of books on uh, over, I don't know, 10 different books or something about all these different things, whether it was TikTok and all that. And it did make me think that their <laughs> mode is not as great as I thought for these companies. Yeah. You make a lot of money while you're making it, but I mean, in terms of the durability and everything, I'm not sure how easy it is to stop competition. Um, we measure competition as of the moment. Mm -hmm. So like I have a huge market share, you have nothing. But what I care about is can someone go from zero to 5% market share in five months or something? And um, because it, you know, some of these things can look like you have no competition and then in a couple of years, you've lost half your market to them, you know? And regulators will say there's no competition stuff up to the point where the monopoly, the, you know, thing that's seen as monopoly, which, you know, by market share it is, um, then has a huge decline. So, I, you know, Netflix, I think that's not an issue, especially because the, you know, Disney Plus will be the same size as Netflix at some point. I mean, um, HBO Max. The, I don't know if there'll be three or five of them or what, but you're not going to sign up for one. Uh, some of them lacks enough scale. Paramount probably lacks enough scale. And Peacock, we've talked about. And so there are a couple that even though they're big companies own them, they might not have enough scale. So it may not it might not be five or seven or something streaming services that you have. But if you're number two, if Netflix ends up being the number two or number three streaming service in the world, they'll still make a bunch of money. And all of them, you know. They'll survive and stuff. So I think they're durable. I think if you get yourself in an early position in that kind of streaming thing and you finish in the top three or whatever, you'll know, you'll make money for you'll make enough money to keep running the service forever. Mm -hmm. So I think compared to like Facebook or Google, do I think you'll be around forever? Yes. Yeah. Cause I number two, you know, in any of the businesses Google's in, what's number two? It's out of business. You know, what's the you know? So they have a ton of capital and stuff, so they won't be out of business. But you don't want to be, I mean, some of them make a little money in some things, but you don't want to be in a second, third, fourth place in some search thing, in some 
uh, video thing and, you know, any of those stuff. Next question. If you had less capital, it would only invest your own money. Would your investment style be different? And yes, like more special situations or deep value. Uh, it would be different. No, it wouldn't be more special situations or deep value. It would be more um, concentration in very small stocks of particular ones that I picked out that I liked a lot. Mostly it'd be much smaller stocks. Yeah. Um, special situation stuff. Maybe, you know, when I don't have a lot of great things to do and stuff, probably that. Um, I'd certainly be willing to do special situation stuff more myself than um, I would for other, for um, people in the fund or for clients, you know, I manage accounts. So you said you would be more concentrated. So like one to two positions, oh, one to three positions. What I meant is I'd be more constant. Uh, so I, just strictly like. Small. Got very it. Very small. Okay. Yeah. Are you um, talking like below 10 million? Like, uh, what's that one yeah. investor? No name so, stocks. Right. So like I can't buy stock basically with, you know, there's no point for a fund to buy a stock less than 10 million, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I would and could if uh, I was managing my own money, just that. So yeah. Yeah, you don't usually find them, but sometimes you find one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's really good when you do. So I would do that. Um, I would probably invest it differently in the sense that in an entire year, I might only buy one stock. But then I would probably hold that stock. But then the next year, I might buy a totally different stock. I wouldn't worry about what are the percentages. Like right I got 5% or, I mean, 5 no, positions. I wouldn't think of it as a portfolio. I yeah. think of it as a series of investments. Yeah. I'd make a series of investments over the years, and that's what I would be doing. Uh, that's how I would think about my own money. I would never think about my own money as a portfolio. Uh, you know, you save some money and then you say, okay, I'll let me buy something with it. You know? Um, I mean, someone owns a, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe they do, but I was going to say, if someone buys a real estate over time, you know, buys this house, they buy their primary residence, they buy an investment. Do they say, here's my real estate portfolio and this is how much I own in each of these places? Or do they say, I have the money, this looks like a good deal at the time, and then at some point they say, oh, this seems really overpriced. It's gotten crazy there. Let me sell out. Or I get a really good price that I could sell out here. Or I don't like that as much or whatever, you know. They're individual deals. It would yeah. be more like you think of it. I mean, our process anyway is like in terms of how long we think about doing it. It's probably about the same level as like an LBO in terms of how long they would do it. That's how I think about it in my personal investments. More like how an LBO would work as a series of deals than as about like the portfolio at any one moment. It's kind of like if you were to move or even to Dallas and you were going to invest throughout Dallas, for example, or throughout your town, right? You would be perfectly comfortable if it's like, oh, well, I actually own three businesses in this town and there you go. Yeah, but I wouldn't buy them all at once. So I guess that, that's one of the biggest differences is I feel with a fund or with clients and stuff, you, you even if you're saying well, we're going to do five things, right? They kind of would like to see, let's do those five things now. Let's have them in it. For me, I'd be like, okay, maybe over the next five years, I'll buy five things or whatever it is. Um, or I know how much I'm going to save in the future so I can do something that uses up all my money now, but then I'm going to save more mm -hmm. so that this is going to turn out to be 50%, 30%, 20%, whatever, of my money a few years down the road, you know, because I expect that I'll save money or I expect whatever, you know, you just those kinds of things. You're a little more cautious sometimes with things when you're managing money because of the liquidity things, but also just because like you don't know how much money you'll bring in in the future. And so sometimes it's going to turn out that you really made an investment that was too small. 
but it seemed big at the time, but you grew too much and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so as an individual, you might have different attitudes about that. I think that the timing thing is more it. The not thinking of it as a portfolio and the timing of it, of specifically, I'm going to buy this at one time and and whatever is more what I think would be different. I think there's always a, a I, I don't know if it's even diversification or whatever, but there's a portfolio thinking that is present all the time a static portfolio that's always how people think in the mm-hmm. investment world and when talking to other people and and clients and all that and i don't feel like in my own life i would have that approach it would be about building up future wealth and not about what does the portfolio look like today i don't really need to look at the portfolio and decide what it looks like today i just need to find deals that make sense and do them you mm-hmm. know someone says does he use put options as insurance on specific investment or the market as a whole, any other hedge strategy? No. Right? No. So, yeah. So people might be um, surprised by that. But to your point though, right, of just talking about you would do it on like a deal by deal basis, you wouldn't think, you don't think about it so much as like a portfolio. Yeah. In your personal investment. And with special situations, sometimes you might have to hedge things. I mentioned that before. Like people talk about buying leaps or something. You probably don't want to just buy leaps if you have a negative view of the market and stuff and buy a bunch of them and whatever. There are things you might want to do. I mean, you know, the margin arbitrage things and whatever that we said. So, like, if you were really going to carry out things where you were doing that special situations and you saw that's what you're doing, then you might have to hedge and stuff. And also, you report to people. Um, so, hedging is a lot about like smoothing out returns and stuff like mm. that. But no, not for us. But we try to. Um, we the main thing is to try to find things that the really big risks are different they might be correlated in the short term and we might be correlated with the market whatever but we'd like to find things where we're not taking the same really big risk you know this one could be undone by technology change in this industry or whatever we don't want to line up a bunch of them that have that same risk um so what are the catastrophic type risks we don't we want them to be different and that's more how we try to manage risk than like hedging or something like that Somebody asks, under what circumstances, if any, would you invest in a company that has yet to attain gap or IFRS profitability or positive free cash flow? I no. don't think so. Not the positive free cash flow one. You know, there. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I can't think of anything. Um, it's not, yeah, it's hard. But usually we have both free cash flow and reported profits. We mentioned financial services and... Um, entertainment there are certain conditions under which a movie studio could be highly profitable really looking forward but not appear to be right now and with insurance it's also possible but it would be weird i you know i mean i said sort of negative things about the new insurance company things that are are public but in theory if you understand the underlying uh, metrics uh it's not necessarily a problem that they're losing business in the first few years of business that they're writing um progressive and geico both you know, could show higher profits if they didn't write as much new business as they do. The, some of the economically uh, value-creating business uh, looks bad in the first year. So, um, so ones that have never achieved it. Now, just they are losing money now. I'm, I'm fine with that. If you've achieved it for 30 years and now you're losing a bunch of money, I, I can deal with that. That doesn't bother me. So I wanted to follow up because somebody actually listened to our last podcast and had a follow-up question on this thread. And we are going to come back to this thread again. So if you have more questions, keep them coming because there's a lot to go through here. Uh, but he said, you spoke about Omicom mm-hmm. with its inflation protection 
and growth that aligns with nominal GDP. Do you think Kraft Heinz has similar qualities? KHC was able to raise prices significantly this past year. That growth basically comes free. And he Mm -hmm. says, they spend about 60% of their free cash flow on dividends. That's currently a 4% dividend yield, 40% of free cash flow left for growth and debt reduction, plus 2 to 3% price hikes every year, and that is basically free, should get you to about a 10% return. Yeah, I think... High nominal GDP growth, you know, high inflation, uh, you know, because the GDP thing doesn't really matter for Kraft Heinz, but high inflation is is good for Kraft Heinz. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So I mean, qualities. I think it's a little more extreme in the case of like the ad agencies, how asset light they are. Kraft Heinz has very high returns on capital and stuff, how asset light they are. And all the accounts like infinite. They don't have material input costs things. There are some. I mean, the packaging stuff. There, there, there's meaningful input cost stuff. I, I think it is better um, if you're, uh, you know, I, I think it's better if you um, are Omnicom than than Kraft Heinz in terms of high nominal GDP and whatever. But obviously, you know, if you borrow a bunch of money and uh, you have pricing power then, you know, it's better in a period of inflation. A lot of things that people that bought was successful for Buffett in the 70s and 80s, less successful today, in part because of the economic environment. Having a lot of pricing power is really useful. Now, I think Kraft Heinz has less pricing power than it used to because of the position of retailers, not because of its brands. Everyone talks about that, that it's, you know, millennial, Gen Z, whatever stuff. They want to eat healthy things and not the processed and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh I don't, you know, no, not really. Because if there was, then there'd be giant brands of that stuff that, and they're they're not. Um, but and also these other ones can make stuff that's just as healthy. There's nothing about it that they have to make. Uh, you know, they can make stuff that's as, as simple as the other stuff. The issue is that certain things, uh, Amazon, Costco, Amazon, Target, Costco, and Walmart have a lot more bargaining power than they used to. So that's why you have store brands and stuff. People talk about store brands like the public either likes store brands or doesn't in some country. And no, stores like store brands, you know, private label. So in countries where, and and areas of the country and everything, where you have dominance by certain retailers, then you get a lot of private label. Where you don't, you don't. And so private label doesn't grow much in in those other things. Um, A private label outside of um, online and warehouse has grown very, I mean, I in some categories, I think it shrunk in the last few years. So I don't think you're seeing more private label at like supermarkets and stuff, but among the biggest ones, which are the ones I just named, you know, the because they also all have online things, online and, um, you know, big box store type things and warehouse clubs. Those I think have a lot more bargaining power. So we'll see what happens that way. But I think it used to be easier for Kraft Heinz um, for those brands, I should say, to raise their prices without a lot of pushback and stuff than if you're buying it at Costco and the giant things that are, you know, whatever, to put together with the mm-hmm. plastic things and mm-hmm. whatever, that, you know, is many months supply of ketchup or whatever you need. Um, those, are, you know, their reaction to inflation and keeping prices down for people and stuff might be more um, than, than it used to be in the 70s and 80s. So I think Buffett said that. Good business, but not as good as it used to be. But certainly inflation, you know, having pricing power is important. And they have more pricing power than most companies. They just don't have as much as I think they did 40 years ago or 30 years ago. 
Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, we will sift through more questions because they keep coming. They keep coming in the same thread? They're in the same thread. So if you want to add to it, uh, go to it. But we could dedicate, we'll do one more podcast uh, to this Q&A and we'll record that next week. So follow me on Twitter at Focused Compound. You can go back to this thread from February 22nd, 2022. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, reach out to me, Andrew at focusedcompounding.com. You could also get more information on the Invest With Us tab at focusedcompounding.com. Thank you so much for all the support. Hit that rating and review. Five stars. We appreciate all the support. We'll see you in the next podcast.